listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. Look with me at the book of Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. What's happened here is that there's been a Gentile Pentecost. The Spirit of God has fallen on Cornelius and his family, and everybody's absolutely blown away that the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who was poured out on Acts chapter 2, the same Holy Spirit who was poured out on the Samaritans, the same Holy Spirit was now poured out on those who were not Jews. They were not Jewish people, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them as well. And so what do we have taught to us? That Jesus is the Savior for Jew and Gentile alike. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers, people who were part of the church, the church who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So the work of the Holy Spirit has now preceded Peter, and by the time he gets to Jerusalem, word of what happened and what Peter was part of has been heard by the church. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, or the Judaizers, criticized him. These are converts to Christianity. These are believers in Jesus as their Messiah, those who had a Jewish background. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And we see, if we go back to Acts chapter 10, verses 28, and then again, verse 48, we see that Peter explains, you know that I'm a Jew. I participated in the ceremonial laws of Judaism by not eating things I shouldn't eat, by not associating with non-Jews. You know that I've done that. And after the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his family, they ask Peter to stay behind. Now that's a big deal for Peter to stay behind. You know why it's a big deal? Because these Greeks, these non-Jews who didn't participate in the Old Testament sacrificial system of abstaining from certain kinds of foods and animals, they would have been bringing out platters of food for Peter who was a Jew to eat. They would have been bringing out things that Jews would never eat. So it was a big deal for Peter to have been spoken to in that trance, in that vision. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat all of these different animals that Jews would never have eaten. So when Peter stayed behind to hang out with Cornelius and to do what Christians do, to disciple others, would have been a big deal. So the Jewish believers in Jesus hear about this and they don't fully understand What you and I are supposed to understand in the 21st century today with absolute clarity, looking back at the example from Scripture, that Jesus died for all people everywhere. They don't fully understand that. So when Peter goes back to Jerusalem, they criticize him, they rebuke him. They said, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. How dare you? You became ceremonially unclean. Verse four. 
But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of air. Reptiles, that's a big no-no for a Jewish person. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, number of completeness. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. The principle of confirmation. Was that vision when Peter was in that trance? Was that vision from the Holy Spirit? Was it from God? Absolutely, because three men came from Caesarea. And this is what happened. Verse 12, and the Spirit told me to go with them. The Spirit, tuck that away, put that in your back pocket. The Holy Spirit is responsible for everything that is taking place. The transforming work of God in your life and in mine comes courtesy of this same Holy Spirit. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. This is a huge thing for Peter, who's a Jew. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us, Cornelius, how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. That becomes incredibly significant. Don't lose sight of verse 14. We're going to come back to that in a moment. As I began to speak, Peter's giving testimony, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Reference to Acts chapter 2. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter three, verse 11. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. Don't you love it when God himself settles an argument? They fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Huge. Up to this point, the gospel is being proclaimed. They're evangelizing only to Jews with Jesus as the fulfillment, the Old Testament Messiah, the Messiah prophesied about, clarified, spoken about in the Old Testament. So up to this point, what we're understanding is that they were evangelizing only to Jews up to this point. Understand what's taking place here. Those who were scattered, they're speaking the word to no one except Jews, verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, by the way, is the northern part of Africa. I'm pretty sure that those people were not white bread. I'm pretty sure that there were people 
of ethnicity. And the Spirit of God is using these people of ethnicity to proclaim and preach the gospel to non-Jews. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Now, this is not just Greek-speaking Jews. This is most likely all-out Greeks, people who were not following the Old Testament at all. They spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's a big deal that non-Jews are accepting Jesus as their savior. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the undeserved favor of God, the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, that man who was converted earlier in the book of Acts, who becomes the apostle Paul. And Barnabas and Saul, who becomes known as Paul, the apostle, become traveling companions and they begin to minister together. All right, this is what's taking place. So Barnabas sent to Tarsus to look for Saul, realizing we need to make disciples. We need to teach and to preach and to help these who accepted Christ become more mature in their walk with Christ. We need reinforcements. I need to get Saul. He knows the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee. He, of anybody, would be able to teach these Gentiles who don't know anything about the Old Testament, who don't have any kind of a schoolmaster to Jesus as the Savior. We need Saul to come in and to teach and to preach and to disciple these. So that's what's happening here. Verse 26, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You know, that word Christian or Christians is only used three times in the entire New Testament. It's so common for us today. It's used elsewhere in Acts and another book of the New Testament. Typically speaking, they're called believers. It's called the church, brothers, sisters. That's what they're referred to, disciples. It's only used three times in all of the New Testament, typically by outsiders in reference to those who were following Jesus, little Christs, like him in character, following after the teachings and the person of Jesus. It's first used here in Antioch. In verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So an amazing thing is now happening here, courtesy of the work of the Holy Spirit, that now the Gentile believers are pooling their resources financially and sending financial aid to Judea, the Jewish believers in Jesus. So you want to talk about humble pie. How many of you would love a piece of key lime pie right now or New York cheesecake? 
come on now. How many of you, this is humble pie that the Jewish believers in Jesus are now eating because the Gentile non-Jewish believers are pooling together courtesy of the Holy Spirit and they're blessing the Jewish believers in Jesus with financial significance to help them in their time of distress. And see, this is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of an individual, in the lives of a group of individuals. He causes us to do things that we otherwise would not do, to reach out to people we otherwise would not reach out to, to say things we otherwise would not say, to do things we would otherwise not do. And the whole church, whether you're Jew or Gentile, black, white, or anywhere in between, the whole church is being taught this lesson again and again and again from all different angles that Jesus is for the human race. If you're a human being, we have commonality in the person and the works of Jesus. There's no such thing as something that's big enough, whether it's skin color or ethnicity or tradition or background, none of that is significant enough to keep us from fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Jesus. And you know what? It's high time that we in the body of Christ stand up and speak out and become the agents of change in the United States of America that is so desperately needed at this particular time. This racial division and the racism that we're seeing How dare we wait for a politician or for legislation to do what only the Spirit of God can do to bring black and white and everybody in between together in commonality based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. There are two entire chapters dedicated in the book of Acts to this amazing circuit-blowing reality. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, and everything that's happened up to this point and everything that's going to happen after this point to get it through our thick heads that everybody has a common reality, a common savior in the person and works of Jesus. And later on, years later, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, that recovering Pharisee familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, he's the one who would write the words that we're going to read now in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. See, the Ephesians were non-Jewish believers in Jesus. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What mystery right here? Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is massively significant. Jews did not understand that to the degree to which now Jewish believers in Jesus began to understand it through Peter's teaching, through Paul's teaching, 
through the teaching that's been there from the very beginning, but made clearer in the New Testament. You say, well, what do you mean? Turn with me to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings in chapter 12, and you'll see it for yourself. If you want to understand what's happening in the world today, you need to understand the Abrahamic covenant. If you want to understand the whole Bible, you need to understand the Abrahamic covenant, that God is, is in the process of revealing himself in progressive ways, revealing more and more of his plan, more and more of what he's going to do so that if you're a faithful student of scripture and you're studying Genesis and all 66 books of the Bible, you're, you're eating a regular diet of God's word, you will understand with greater and greater clarity what we're condensing right here. Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. If you understand that, you'll understand all of the Bible. You'll be able to interpret all of the Bible in light of this, and you'll be able to interpret everything that's happening in the world. In particular, you'll be able to understand what's really unfolding in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, that Paul and Peter and the Jewish believers in Jesus were being taught that now we look at in hindsight and understand so that when Ephesians chapter three, when we read that, this was a mystery. We didn't understand how this was all going to work out, but it was hidden in plain sight. That's what a mystery is. It was hidden in plain sight. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. This particular geographic area that the Jewish people were going to be given. And not all of it has been experienced, so there is yet fulfillment of this land promise. So since it hasn't totally been fulfilled yet, we have the promise that God will make good on his promise at a future date. So there's land. Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, people, the Jewish people. I will bless you and make your name great, the name of Abram, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. This is why when God delivered the Jewish people and brought them through the Red Sea with a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right, and all of the Jewish people made it through, when Pharaoh and the Egyptians tried to go through, that wall of water on the left and wall of water on the right fell in on them because they were persecuting the Jewish people. And God means what he says, says what he means, delivers what he promises. I'll bless those who bless you, but those who curse you, I will curse. That's the significance of God dealing justly with Pharaoh and the Egyptians when they tried to cross the Red Sea as well. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And look at this in verse three. And in you, all of the families on the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jewish people, but that means also the non-Jewish people. So up to that time, the Jewish people are holding their breath, wondering, what does that all mean? Well, here's what it means in hindsight. And if you read the New Testament, you understand this. I want to condense it for us right here. That Abram had a son, and that son was a son of promise, and through his line would come Jesus of Nazareth, fully a Jew. And on the cross, when Jesus gave his life as a once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and shed his blood, Jew and Gentile alike could have the same saving faith, have every single one of their sins forgiven 
in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Through the offspring of Abram, not his immediate son, but the descendant who would be Jesus from Abraham's line, all people on the face of the earth would be blessed with the opportunity for redemption, the opportunity for the forgiveness of sins. It's all wrapped up in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So when we read in Genesis chapter 12 that through your offspring, through one of your particular descendants will all families, all peoples on the earth be blessed, that is a nod to, a wink to, a pointing to Jesus of Nazareth, who would be a direct descendant from Abraham, the son of the promise. And lo and behold, what we're reading in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 is a fulfillment, the mystery made known that through Christ, even the non-Jewish people are heirs of the same promise that Jesus doesn't see people based on their skin color. He sees people, all people, based on their need for forgiveness. And the fact that we can be forgiven simply by faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And you know, if that's the way God the Father sees us, if that's the way the Son sees us, if that's the way the Holy Spirit sees us, then that's the way you need to see other people on this planet in the 21st century. That's the way I need to see those people. The Bible is not afraid to address every single issue that we will face here, living life outside of Eden. And one of the issues that never seems to go away because the heart is deceptively wicked, who can know it, is the issue of racism. We have this thing called the flesh and we will be dealing with the flesh until the day that we see Jesus face to face, either in his return or our passage when we die here on earth and we get to see him face to face. We deal with sins of the flesh, looking down our noses at other people when we should be looking up to Jesus. You see, what we're seeing in Peter's life is the same thing that we're seeing in Saul's life. It's the same thing that we're seeing in the lives of the Samaritans. The same thing that we're seeing in the life of Cornelius and his whole household. The same thing that we see in the life of any and every single Christ follower. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, you receive power to do what you otherwise would not do, to be who you otherwise would not be, to associate with people you otherwise would not associate with, to get out of your comfort zone and to embrace people in the same way that God embraces all people. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. It's a beautiful thing what God has done through the death of Jesus, through the crucifixion of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus. It's an opportunity for you to give your life to Christ, an opportunity for everybody to give their life to Christ, to let Jesus step in and be the substitute sacrifice that you could not do for yourself. If you could have saved yourself, don't you think God would have let you do it? You couldn't do it. 
Nobody can save themselves. The love of God goes deep and wide for people of any and every single race because we're all part of the human race. And every single one of us has a problem with sin. And if we've got a problem with sin, we've got a problem with righteousness. We're not righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the undeserved favor given to us by Jesus when he hung on the cross. And so when we get to Ephesians chapter four, turn with me to Ephesians chapter four, and we read these words of the recovering Pharisee, Saul, who became Paul. These words now have a context for us as Gentiles. They have a context for Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah. They have a context understanding what's happening in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, what's being taught in Genesis chapter 12, that through Jesus, through a particular descendant of Abraham, will all families, all people on the face of the earth be blessed through Jesus. We understand the mystery of what was revealed to Paul by the hand of Almighty God. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The idea of sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit is to rescue you, to save you, to cleanse you from all of your sins so that you will not continue to walk in sin. So Paul is saying, I urge you in light of the calling you've received to live a life that is worthy of that calling, a life that is set apart from the flesh and set apart to the glory and for the glory of God, courtesy of the Holy Spirit. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Unity is something that God gives us and then it's up to us to maintain it. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Gentile, Jew, black, white, everybody in between. This is why when we get to the book of Revelation and we see people from every tongue, every tribe, every language, they all have someone in common. It's the one who died on the cross for the forgiveness of every single one of their sins. There is one body, one Lord, one faith, one Savior, one baptism. By the way, this is not speaking of water baptism. This is speaking about the Holy Spirit's baptism. This is what we're seeing in the book of Acts. First, when the Holy Spirit falls upon the Jewish believers in Jesus in Acts chapter two. And then when the Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritan believers. And then when the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and his family. This is the game changer, folks. That Gentile or Jew, no matter where you come from, if you have given your life to Christ, you are brought into, baptized into, immersed into the body of Christ. I know that here, this side of eternity, living outside of Eden, there are black churches, there are white churches, 
There are churches based on ethnicity. However, biblically speaking, there is only one church, one body, because there is one Savior. And we would do well as followers of Jesus, if we're really following him, to do something to bring us further along in this 21st century that they were understanding in the first century, to be a catalyst for the kind of unity that we find in the person and the finished work of Jesus. Get out there and be a catalyst for unity. When you see racial division, when you see people causing disharmony, causing division based on whatever it might be, you have it on the authority of Jesus Christ himself and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to stand up and speak out and to be God's ongoing agent of change, to be a catalyst for unity in a world, in a nation that is very divided because of nothing other than the flesh and the devil that wants to oppose the uniting work of the Spirit of God. Red, yellow, black, white, all lives matter in God's sight, and Jesus proved it on the cross. So we've got work to do to right wrongs. Listen, the kind of unity, courtesy, of the Spirit of God will never be brought about by legislation. That can only go so far. The deep work of the Spirit of God is a work in the hearts of humankind. And it's time for you and for me, it's long been time for us to invite God through the power of the Holy Spirit to use us, to send us out into a very dark, distasteful world. That's why we're called salt and light, to be catalysts for change with the authority of God himself sending us into the world, calling us out from the world into one body. There is one faith. There is one church. There is one Lord and Savior of all. There is one baptism. And this is why we see God holding off on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit toward the Samaritans until the Jews are there with laying on of hands and the delay of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit until Peter, a Jew, is able to get there and to observe it because they needed an object lesson that we would do well to remember today. There are not multiple churches filled with different spirits. There are not different saviors for the Jew, a different savior for the non-Jew, a different savior for the black person, a different savior for the white person. Jesus is the one and only uniquely brought forth son of God who shed his blood for the forgiveness of every single one of our sins. And it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, what junk you might have in your trunk, Jesus died for it all. Now here's what's amazing if you go back to Acts chapter 10, verse two. I don't know if you stopped to recognize this, but it's important for us to pause for a moment to understand. You can be a religious person, you can be a devout person, you can be a person of prayer, you can be a person who's dedicated yourself to ministry and not be saved and not have the Holy Spirit. If being a religious person was enough, then you explain to me what happened in the life here of this centurion 
Cornelius and his family. Look with me in Acts chapter 10, verse two. It says that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. He was a prayer warrior. And yet that was not enough to save him. It was something that certainly got the attention of Almighty God, but it was not enough to save him. How do I know that? Because look with me in Acts chapter 11, verse 14. This is the verse that I told you to take note of that we were going to look at again. Peter's recounting what happened in Cornelius' life and when he says that Cornelius was explaining that he, Peter, will declare to you the message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. You see, Cornelius was not saved until Peter came and presented Jesus as the Messiah who died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. You can go to church, you can be involved in ministry, your parents, you might have come from a very spiritual upbringing, a very morally upright upbringing, But if it's true for Cornelius that he still needed to be saved, he still needed to receive the Holy Spirit, then it's true for you and it's true for everybody on the face of the earth. Being a devout, religious person is not enough to save you. If you could have been religious enough and devout enough and spiritual enough, apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and believe me, believe God, he would have let you be saved. Certainly, If you could have been saved by adhering to the Old Testament law, certainly Saul would have qualified to have been saved, but he wasn't qualified to be saved. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear through no adherence to the law. No one will be declared righteous by adhering to the Old Testament law. So if you can't be saved by adhering to the Old Testament law, which was given by God, then how ridiculous it is to think that there's something else we can do apart from the law of God to rescue ourselves, to save ourselves. And here God wants us to understand that if Cornelius, a devout, God-fearing man, him and his household, who gave to the poor, it's good to give to the poor, but it won't save you, who was a prayer warrior, it's good to pray, but prayer won't save you. If he needed to be saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and the consequence of him being saved was this, what we read about here in verse 46 of Acts chapter 10, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues or languages, human languages and extolling God He became a witness for Jesus. They became a witness for Jesus. And it goes back to Acts chapter one, verse eight. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will become something you otherwise would not be. You will become a witness for Jesus. This is what we see again and again and again through the entire book of Acts that when someone gets saved, when somebody comes to know Jesus as their savior, and they receive the Holy Spirit, they cannot but help. They cannot help but give testimony to Jesus and tell other people about Jesus. It's not human power. It's not something that you do naturally. It's something that we do supernaturally. You will receive. In fact, if you gave your life to Christ, you did receive power to enable you to be successful in pointing people to Jesus. It was true in the first century and it's been true ever since then. When you give your life to Christ, you receive power to do what you otherwise would not do to be an effective witness for Jesus. It was true for Peter. It was true for Saul. It was true for the Samaritans. It was true for Cornelius and his whole household. And it's true today. God 
cares about his son so much, is so excited about his son. He wants you to be excited about his son. And he knows you're not capable. He knows that you are most likely a coward left to your natural propensity. You won't stand up and speak out for Jesus. But when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will. You'll stand up and you'll speak out for Jesus and you'll be excited about telling other people about Jesus. You'll want to put Jesus on display at the workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood. You received power when the Holy Spirit came upon you to make you an effective witness for Jesus. You might be busy doing a lot of things in your life, pursuing financial advancement, and there's nothing wrong with providing for your family, but if in your pursuit of money, you don't have time to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be a witness for Jesus, I need to lovingly say to you, more importantly, it's not me. The Holy Spirit wants you to hear this loud and clear. You're too busy pursuing something that's not eternally significant. The number one aim in your life and in mine, the number one aim of every follower of Jesus is to point people to Jesus, to be a witness for Jesus, courtesy of the dynamic, supernatural power of God called the Holy Spirit. Every aspect of your life, every aspect of your life, your job, your relationships with people, your use of time, your use of money, all of your resources are to be directed toward this single, solitary aim. If you don't believe me, take it from God himself who put his son on display for all the world to see. If God was that jazzed about his son, he wants you, he wants me as followers of that same son to be just as jazzed. And he knows that we have a tendency to shrink back. Look with me at Proverbs 29, 25, an important passage of scripture that helps us put everything in the context. It says this, the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Throughout the course of your life, you're going to be tempted to be concerned with the opinions of people more than the opinion of God. It's something that never goes away. We are continually challenged, continually tempted, continually enticed to think that the opinions of people matter more than the opinions of Almighty God. Now, Peter is killing it up to this point. He is a transformed vessel filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing testimony to Jesus, giving testimony after testimony, reaching out to people that he otherwise would not have reached out to, courtesy of Nothing other than the work of the Holy Spirit. Never, I've never eaten anything unclean. Don't call something unclean that God has called clean. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's standing up against fear pressure that he had such a propensity to give into earlier in his pre Christian days, and he's killing it here. He is standing up and speaking out and going into new territory and spreading the gospel and leading people to Christ left and right for one reason and one reason only, the Holy Spirit. Peter is a yielded vessel, and as he's yielded to the Holy Spirit, God is using Peter in ways that Peter would have never been used if he was left on his own. He's killing it left and right, but... 
when we get to Galatians chapter two, this other book that the super apostle Paul wrote, this book that Paul wrote, we see that Peter goes back to his propensity to give in to the opinions of people. Look with me at Galatians chapter two, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas, this is Paul writing this, and it's interesting that he's using the pre-salvation name of Peter here to help us understand that he's acting the way he used to act before he was saved and before he was filled with the Holy Spirit. But when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, that very same place where all of this is taking place, that very same place right here. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, the Jewish believers in Jesus. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Meaning you must get circumcised if you give your life to Christ and you're not a Jew. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What happened to Peter? What happened to this guy who was filled with the Holy Spirit and was leading people to Christ left and right, filled with dynamic power of Almighty God, convincing people? More importantly, it was the Holy Spirit working through him that was convincing people. What happened so that it made its way into the record of Scripture that in Galatians chapter 2, this same guy reverts and goes back, giving in to fear pressure, being concerned about the opinions of people and straying from the clearly revealed truth of God, that Jesus Christ is for all people everywhere. You know what happened to Peter, I think is the same thing that happens to me and the same thing that happens to you, the same thing that will happen to me and the same thing that will happen to you I love what William Booth said. He said it perfectly. The founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, the tendency of fire is to go out. Therefore, watch the fire on the altar of your heart. The tendency of fire is to go out. Therefore, watch the fire on the altar of your heart. God has given to you the same supernatural power that he gave to Peter, but it's up to us to tend to the flames. It's up to us to make sure that that fire doesn't go out. And I'm going to give you a very practical way to stoke the flame of the Spirit of God in your own life so that you will be in position all throughout this week to stand up and to speak out, to be ready in the power of the Holy Spirit at your workplace, in your neighborhood, in a family situation, on social media. 
that you'll be in a position to be ready to stand up and speak out, to be filled with the power of God instead of the power of the flesh, to say the right thing at the right time, in the right way, to point people to Jesus. Remember, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. But the tendency of fire is to go out. Therefore, watch the fire on the altar of your heart. You get this Bible that you have, and you keep it by your bedside on your nightstand. And first thing in the morning when you get up, you open up your Bible and you read it with a commitment to putting into practice whatever it is that you read. Do not mistake Bible knowledge with Bible application. Simply knowing your Bible is not going to change you. You've got to read this Bible with a bent toward putting it into action before you even crack it open. You keep your Bible by your bedside and first thing in the morning before you get out of bed, you open that Bible and you pray and you say, God, open my eyes, open my heart to what I'm about to read what I'm about to receive and help me to put it into action. I crucify my flesh. I renounce my flesh and I, by an act of faith, submit to the Holy Spirit who's living inside of me and the power of the Holy Spirit. Put this word into action in my life. You read the word of God and you put it into action all throughout your day. And at the end of the day, when you go back into your bed, you crawl into your bed, that same Bible that you read in the morning will be there on your nightstand and you open it up again. And you say, God, I ask you to open up my eyes to the truth of your word. I renounce and reject my flesh totally. I renounce and reject the devil. I renounce and reject the world and its system. Forgive me for the ways that I have not walked with you today. Cleanse me and wash me. 1 John chapter 1 makes it clear if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Lord, I recommit myself to putting your word into action. You know, if you want to memorize the Bible, that's a great way to do it. Before you go to bed at night, you read the Bible last thing before you go to bed. You will be amazed that when you get up in the morning, the word of God has been marinating, has your mind and your heart, your whole being marinating in the word of God. And you'll be amazed how you remember scripture. All you have to do is read the Bible with that kind of a surrendered life for the next seven days. Do it every day for seven days. Forget about the rest of your life. Just do that for seven days with a bent on putting the word of God into action. And on the eighth day, recommit yourself to another seven days. By the yard, it's hard. Inch by inch, it's a cinch. You commit yourself to putting the word of God into practice that way for the next seven days. You will find that the power of God will be flowing through you to be an effective witness for Jesus, that at the right time, you'll say the right words in the right way, and you will be an effective witness for Jesus. And before you know it, one seven-day increment at a time, your entire life will have more and more momentum of pointing people to Jesus and being characterized by the same power that filled the early church and made them unstoppable witnesses to the saving, cleansing work of Jesus. The world needs to hear that Jesus still saves. And if you will let him, 
the Holy Spirit will flow through you and you will not help but be a powerful witness for Jesus Christ wherever you go. Your life will take care of itself. Do it for seven days. Surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and putting the Bible into action every day for the next seven days. And watch the power of God be released in your life like never before. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.